I've been, uh, I'm going to hover the field because uh, Diane might not have that thing going yet. But uh, I'm in number three of the series, Nevertheless. How many have enjoyed this series so far? Praise God. Hallelujah. Lie and just say you have, even if you haven't. Praise the Lord. All right, number three, nevertheless, eyes on the prize. How many of you are familiar with the term, eyes on the prize? Well, God is the one who came up with the idea that we need to have our eyes on the prize. How many of you are familiar with the life of Elijah the prophet and his predecessor who served him many years and then took his place when Elijah went to be with the Lord in heaven, Elisha, who followed Elijah. How many of you are familiar with that story? Let me see your hands, because that'll save a whole lot of preaching. Okay, well, I need to give some of it to you. So 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 5 through 14. As I prepare to read this, let me give you a little bit of background. Um, Elijah, perhaps the greatest prophet uh, in terms of signs and wonders and miracles. He was revered, he was feared, and for good reason, the enemies of God, the prophets of Baal, had good reason to fear him because he personally slew 450 of them after a great showdown where he offered for them to call fire down upon the sacrifice, and they jumped and howled and cut themselves with stones all morning long. Nothing happened, and he said, all right, cover the sacrifice with water, douse it, saturate it. He just said, oh, Lord, show these fools who you are, and bam, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, licked up all the water. That was the kind of man Elijah was. He performed, the God working through him, a dozen wonderful supernatural miracles like that throughout his lifetime. As his life went on, God had a purpose that when he died, there should be a prophet like him that would take his place. And so he spoke to Elijah and he said, I want you to go to such and such a town, such and such a, a community, and go to this farm and you're going to see a young man plowing. His name is Elisha, and I want you to call him, I've called him, to follow you. So Elijah goes and he sees Elisha plowing in the field with a yoke of oxen. He, he says, come over here and I need to talk to you, and Elisha knows who Elijah is. And all Elijah does is he takes his mantle off, his wrap. And that mantle is symbolic of the anointing of God upon Elijah's life, the prophet's mantle. So Elijah takes off the mantle and he throws it around the shoulders of Elisha. And when he does, Elisha's mind must have just been spinning. What does this mean? And he felt the power of God as that mantle was put on him. And he was just speechless. And so Elijah grabs the mantle, pulls it off of him, and he said, what have I done to you? I haven't done anything to you. And um, so he felt that anointing, and he slew the oxen, offered them up. He took the yoke of the oxen. He made the fire with it, and he went back and told his dad, I'm following the prophet of God. The Lord will bless you, but I'm on my way. And that began Elisha's uh, um, job, if you will, of uh, being a servant to Elisha. 
and preparing him for what God had for him when one day he would take over as the prophet of God in Israel. And so the years went by and Elisha served Elijah. Now, towards the end of Elijah's life, apparently it was known in the spirit realm for those who were prophetic and those that could hear from God that the Lord was about to take Elijah to heaven. Nobody knew how it would happen, but they knew it was time for Elijah to leave this world. So Elisha's following Elijah, and Elisha knows that it's time. And apparently it got so close that they knew the day. They woke up that morning and they knew this day, my master Elijah will be taken from me up into heaven. Pretty amazing. So they are traveling and Elijah says, we need to go to Bethel. And in these towns like Bethel and Jericho, they had groups called the sons of the prophets. What they were is they were prophetic guilds, if you were. Like if you were a plumber, you'd belong to the plumber's guild, and all the guys that did plumbing would hang out together and talk plumbing. Well, this was a prophet's guild, and they, they were called the sons of the prophets, so they were probably the sons of guys who were prophets, and they got together in this club, and they made a prophet's club, and they were the sons of the prophets. So there was a, a, a prophet's club made up of the sons of the prophets in each of these communities. So we're going to pick this story up as Elijah and Elisha, on the day that Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven, um, as they enter the town of Jericho. They've left Bethel. God's told Elisha, the Lord's called me to Jericho. So, verse 5. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha, and they said to him, Do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And Elisha said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah, and by the way, the sons of the prophets, the prophets guild, God never called prophets together to form a little prophets conference, a prophets club. Because you know what happens when they do? They turn into a little barnyard of little chickens and they start all pecking at the same piece of food and they all start gossiping, spiritual gossip. Oh, did you hear the, what the Lord showed so-and-so? Oh, yes, the Lord showed that me to me too. And, and after a while, they just become a club and and they, 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 they devise whatever prophetic word among themselves they feel like God is saying. So they're not very reliable. And um, um, at, at least that's the way I've always viewed them when I've read about the, the, the sons of the prophets in the scripture. God never seemed to have a, a great use for them. So they come to Elisha and uh, Elijah's entered the town and they, they get Elisha off. They said, oh, did you know that Elijah's going to leave you today? This is the day he's supposed to go. So Elijah said, I know it, shut up. And he put him off. And then Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan River. But Elisha answered him and said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So Elijah said, you know, these guys like you here. You seem to have a little club you can join, you know, the sons of the prophets. And, 
and uh, you've certainly been around the prophetic anointing. Why don't you stay here? God's told me to go to the Jordan River. And so he says, there's no way I'm going to leave you. As the Lord lives, as you live, I will not leave you. So I'm sure Elijah shrugged and kind of said, okay, fine. So the two of them went on. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went, followed them behind, and stood at some distance from them as the two men were standing at the banks of the Jordan River. And these 50 sons of the prophets were probably up on a little hill, little knoll, overlooking and watching them. And so Elijah, the Bible continues, took off his, his mantle. He rolled it up and he struck the water. And the water parted to the one side and to the other till the two men were able to go over on dry ground. And when they crossed over the Jordan River, they continued to go on and Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit that comes on me. And Elijah said to him, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you watch me and see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not watch me, if you don't see me when I go up, it will not be so for you. So they went on a little further and they talked. And behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire came at them and burst the two of them asunder, separating the two of them. And then Elijah went up into heaven by a whirlwind. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then Elisha took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them in two pieces. And he saw the cloak, the mantle of Elijah, had fallen from him, and he went back, and he stood, he picked up the mantle, he went back to the river bank of the Jordan River. And then he took the mantle of Elijah, which had fallen from him, and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and the other, and Elisha went back over. And those 50 prophets were watching the whole thing, those 50 sons of the prophets. <coughs> How many have heard this story before? It's an amazing story. It is, it is really an allegory of Jesus being portrayed by Elijah, being resurrected and going up into heaven as the apostles and 500 disciples stood and watched him as he went up into heaven and how the, on the day of Pentecost afterwards, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the mantle of Jesus came down upon us. We are Elisha and so we have received the double anointing and it's also analogous to the fact that Jesus said the works that I do, you'll do and more. 
in John 14, 12, because I go to the Father. Now, it is a noted fact in Scripture that while Elijah performed 12 major miracles, Elisha in his lifetime performed, guess how many? 24 miracles, exactly double the number of miracles. So he indeed had that double portion. Well, we need to talk about what is a hard thing. Because Elijah turned to Elisha and he said, wow, what you ask is a hard thing. And we need to talk about why when he asked for a double portion of the anointing that was on Elijah, why that was a hard thing to give. You know, a lot of us over the years have been, we've gone to churches or maybe conferences where there were, quote, sons of the prophets, and they were doling out their mantle of anointing to anybody and everybody who'd get in line and want to receive it. Oh, the Lord tells me that I'm going to transfer my anointing to you, and the Lord told me I'm going to transfer my anointing to you. And I've heard people over the years talk about how so-and-so transferred their anointing, and I thought, what a bunch of hogwash. These people have apparently never really read the Bible, and they had this attitude that they could just give the anointing God's given to them. They are authorized to give it to whoever they want to give it to. It's kind of ridiculous because a man who is really carried an anointing said, it's impossible. You ask a hard thing. Why was passing on the anointing to Elisha? It was God's will. Why was it a hard thing? Well, there's an answer. And we need to take a minute and develop that answer because you need to understand it when we get to the word nevertheless. It's because Elijah's anointing came directly from God. And Elijah did not have the sovereign authority to just simply grant it to Elisha. You need to understand that the anointing, if you think about it, it's, it's a condition that existed in the relationship between God and Elijah. So Elijah was never in control of that anointing. God was always in control of that anointing. It was a condition that was there as long as Elijah remained in that relationship with God. And so because of it, similarly, um, that anointing could not exist in Elisha's life unless God willed it to be so. So it could only exist in a relationship between God and Elisha, just like it existed between God and Elijah. So that's why Elijah said, this is hard for me. I can't really give this. I can't grant it to you. It is impossible to transfer the gift of the anointing between people and bypass direct communion with God. That's, that's important. I wish I could camp out on it, preach on it a little bit. Just, just understand when God gives you an anointing, you cannot transfer it to other people because it is holy between you and God. God has to give what he wants to give to Glenn. I can't give it to him. Amen? So, therefore, Elisha's request for a double portion 
It can't be earned. It can't be gained by merit. He can't get it because he was faithful all those years. He can't learn about it by studying the scriptures and obtain it. He can't work for it. And he can't get it by inheritance. It doesn't matter whose son he is, how good he's been, how diligently he's served. The anointing, the double portion of the anointing, cannot be obtained through anything that we do. It's absolutely impossible to receive it without God wanting to give it. So there's that narrow passageway. The only hope anyone has of having the anointing of God is that God wants to give it to you. And you're going to have to deal with God. Amen? All right. So unless God wants to give it, Elisha isn't getting it. <clears throat> you ask a hard thing. Nevertheless, nevertheless, hallelujah, now remember that nevertheless is the ver verbal fulcrum of heaven permitting a pivot away from the domination of lesser facts towards the possibilities of the higher truths that can never be diminished by opposing arguments and objections. Here's the heavenly rule that nevertheless is based on. That rule is simply this. What's impossible with men is, can be obtained through what's permissible with God. I want you to juxtapose the word impossible with the word permissible. What is impossible with men can be obtained through what's permissible with God. In short, the word nevertheless, that great pivotal utterance, introduces a portal that allows you to escape the grip of what's impossible and access what's permissible. Maybe it is impossible. Maybe I don't deserve it. Maybe I'm not smart enough to hold on to it. Maybe there's all of these reasons why it is impossible. I can never have this anointing from God. Yet, nevertheless, through the portal of what's permissible, God is willing to grant permission for what is impossible. How many Christians just give up asking for things because it's impossible? Just because they can't see any way in which God would not only could do it, but they know reasons why God shouldn't do it for them. There's so many Christians that believe in what God can do, but they're convinced that he won't do it for them. They have lost sight of the power of what's permissible over what's impossible. So Elijah passes God's nevertheless on to Elisha. If you see me when I'm taken up, then you can have what you've asked. But if you don't watch me, then you don't have it. That's God's nevertheless. Hallelujah. So, so now, <clears throat> where does this story fit in with your life and my life? 
it's this. God has a portal of access to what lies beyond what he has rationed to you and allows you to ask for more. Now, God's rations are a lot. God has rationed to us the Holy Spirit. He's rationed to us the measure of faith. To each one, Romans 12 says, God has rationed the measure of faith. Each one, there's things given, there's anointing given, there's gifts given, there's wisdom given, there's understanding. God's rations are lavish, they're abundant, but the nevertheless of God is a portal that gives you access to more than what God has rationed. Never be satisfied with what God has given you. You can have more. You can have more. You can have more. That's where this message fits in our life. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who by the power that is working in us, which is the Holy Spirit, is able to do far above all that we think or ask. He sets that out there on the horizon to let you know you can have more. You can have more than what you asked. You can have more than what you've imagined. It's out there. But you're going to need God's nevertheless to get to it. Hallelujah. So I want to share with you Elisha and how he positioned himself for God to give him that nevertheless that turned him into twice the prophet that Elijah was. Because, and I share it because our relationship with Jesus permits us to access the kind of hard things that Elisha asked for. So I want us to look at Elisha's example. And I say to you this morning that people who are true followers of Jesus, and I trust all of you are true followers of Jesus, will take home wisdom from these next five points that I'm going to extract from Elisha's life. Number one, pursue God's call with your whole life. Every one of you are called. Every one of you have a calling. We think of callings as, as being something that God chooses only to give to certain Christians. And they're supposed to go be missionaries or supposed to be apostles or prophets or something like that. But everyone, everyone is called. What's the difference between many are called and few are chosen? The few that are chosen are chosen because they responded to the call. Many are called, but those that went are chosen. God's not selectively choosing people. He's calling, and he's saying those that follow with their whole life, I choose them. I mean, if I were God, I'd do that. <laughs> Amen. So, number one, Elisha spent his life from the moment that mantle hit his shoulders. He did not deviate. Don't deviate. Follow Jesus with your whole life. Don't be a recreational Christian. Be a professional Christian. Look yourself in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm a professional Christian. I'm not a play soldier. I'm a professional soldier. 
I, I, I am not a play musician. I'm a professional musician. I'm not a recreational Christian. I just don't go on vacations with Jesus once a week on a Sunday morning. I'm a professional Christian. I get up Monday morning. I'm a professional Christian. Tuesday morning, I'm a professional Christian. I, I take this seriously with my life. I follow Jesus. And could I say, if you're going to follow Elisha's example, this set him up to be able to ask a hard thing, never, ever join the prophet's guild. He went to Bethel, the prophets, sons of the prophets, said, stay here with us. We've got a place for you. A place. You'll be highly honored. You were, you were Elijah's right-hand man. You'll have a place of honor. The rest of your life will be spent in honor. People will sit at your feet and want you to recant the, recall uh, uh, the stories of Elijah. After all, the, the Lord's going to take your master from you today. Just stay here with us. Your job's finished. Your job's finished. He's going up to heaven. What are you going to do? He said, shut up. I know he's going. He couldn't think of a big explanation. He just said, shut up. And he followed Elijah. Do not join the prophet's guild. Never settle for group faith when Jesus has called you himself to follow him. Why would you join the sons of the prophets when God called you to follow Jesus? There's too much group faith in church today in the body of Christ. I'm going to join this church because they have the right doctrine. And because they're right with God, if I'm right with them, I'll be right with God. That's what Catholics were for hundreds of years. If the priests are right with God and I'm right with the priests, then I'm right with God. That's group faith. But Jesus died and rose from the dead to destroy the grip of the priesthood. He died on the cross and rose from the dead so that each and every one of you could follow God directly. Somebody say amen. You don't, get, you don't need group faith. The problem is if you live by group faith, you're never going to rise above the group. Hallelujah. If you want to know what groups do, watch the news. So... Don't join the sons of the prophets. Let them have their religion. You have Jesus. Amen. Amen. Number two, cross over the Jordan River. When you're serving Jesus with your life and it gets to the point where you feel like I've done it all, I'm at the end, Elijah's going to be taken. There's no more left for me to do. There's no reason for me to cross the Jordan River with him. First of all, there's nothing on the other side of the Jordan. It's desert. My, my master is going to cross the Jordan River. He's going to walk out into the desert. Why in the world? And then he's going to disappear. Why in the world would I follow him out there? There's no practical reason. People that follow Jesus like Elisha followed Elijah, they do things without practical reasons because they've committed to it. They've committed to it. Cross the Jordan River. Follow Jesus to the very end. Follow him to the place where if he leaves you, you'll be all alone. Do you realize that 
Elisha knew that the sons of the prophets, 50 of them were up there watching. He just, he just told us to shut up. We know that Elijah's going to go up, and Elisha's going to look like a fool. He's going to have to come back across and eat his words and humble pie and ask if that offer was still open to join our club. So they're watching him. He still leaves them behind, goes across the Jordan with Elijah, and we know that little conversation went on between the two of them and God. Somebody say amen. amen. Hallelujah. Let me tell you something. If you don't cross the Jordan River, you will never have an opportunity to ask the hard thing. If you stay with the sons of the prophets, trust me, they're never going to say, ask what you want. You will never be able, ever, to ask God for the hard things that you really want if you stay behind. You've got to go to the, you've got to go to the wall. Amen? Asking the opportunity to ask the hard thing only comes after you've crossed the Jordan. You've actually physically spent everything, invested everything. There's nothing left. If God doesn't answer, then you're the fool left alone in the wilderness. That's how far you've got to take it if you're going to walk with God. Number three, once you cross the Jordan River, ask the hard thing. Ask it. Let the Holy Spirit birth hard things in your heart. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid. If you have followed, if you are in that place and you know that God has birthed a desire for something, it's so impossible, it's almost unlawful. But you know the Holy Spirit's birthed it in there. Don't be afraid. Let God birth that thing in your heart. Let me tell you, the fear of asking too much is what leads to asking too little. Somebody say amen. amen. God is more disappointed with the timid than he is with the aggressive. Let's let that set there. Praise the Lord. Number four, keep your eyes on the prize. Now, this is an important part, and this is where we lose a lot of people. It can seem confusing what's about to happen. Elijah says, if you watch me when I go up, then you can have it. You have to keep your eyes on me till I'm gone. What happens next is amazing when you really think about what God did. The Bible says that probably from a vantage point beyond the horizon came a fireball that as it got closer, it was apparent that it was a chariot and horses. This was not a chariot and horses that was on fire. This was fire shaped into a chariot and horses. It sped at them probably at the speed of light came directly at them and then split them apart. So I guarantee you, Elisha jumped back as that chariot went. At the very moment that the chariot burst them asunder, Elijah began to lift off the ground as immediately a whirlwind began to swirl around him. 
Now, when a whirlwind swirls around you and you're out in the desert, if you've spent time in a desert place, you know that when that wind begins to swirl, what do you get? You get a cloud dust. So he sees a whirlwind. Elijah's in that whirlwind, and it's starting to carry him up to heaven. All this happened like that. So how many people would watch that fireball, that chariot? How many people would go and keep their eyes on that thing? And if they did, for a moment, Elijah would be gone, and they would have missed it. But he doesn't allow the distraction that God sent. The chariot of fire did not carry Elijah up into heaven. So many people believe that Elijah went to heaven in a chariot of fire. That's not true. It's not what the Bible says. It was a heavenly distraction. It was sent to push the two of them apart so the whirlwind could kick up immediately around Elijah, and that whirlwind carried him up into heaven. And it was a distraction. God is not always going to make it easy for you to get what you want from him. Sometimes it's going to take tremendous diligence, tremendous persistence. And he let that fiery chariot come just so that Elisha would have something else to watch. And then, oh, sorry about your luck. Do you understand what's going on here? So he watches and his master goes up. But he shouts, oh, my father, my father. He's talking to Elijah. He's shouting at Elijah. He's going, my father, my father. The, the chariots of, he's so overwhelmed by what's happened, stupid stuff starts coming out of his mouth. The, the, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. He couldn't think of anything else to say. But doesn't matter. He kept his eyes on Elisha. And when everything had settled and the moment was past, he looked and folded up on the ground was the mantle. And that brings me now to the fifth and final point. After you've kept your eyes on the prize and the mantle's lying at your feet, take it up and use it. Take up the mantle and use it. The Bible says, neglect not the gift that is in you that was given you by the Holy Spirit. Stir up the gift that is in you. Listen, after Elisha picks up the mantle, he has possession of it. Does he have possession of it? Did God leave it for him? He's got it. He has it. But watch what happens. He turns around and he walks back to the Jordan River. He stands at the banks. I'm sure he's looking right across the banks and up at that little hill. There's the 50 hens standing up there, the sons of the prophets, and they're wide-eyed looking at this thing, and he's got that mantle in his hand. Notice he doesn't go, oh, I've got it, and tuck it under his arm and try to get across the Jordan River. He grabs that mantle, wads it up like Elijah did, and he strikes the water, hallelujah, and in a motion of furious faith, he smites the Jordan, and in an instant, as he shouts out, I'm sure loud enough for them to hear, where is the God of Elijah? And he hits the water, and when he does, the very moment he does, he and the mantle 
are fused together and the, his soul and that mantle are synced up and the anointing becomes his. I don't believe had he not done that, had he not used the mantle, that it would have been synced up with him. So many times God has given us things that we have never used them. We have never taken them out and said, if God's given this to me, where is God? You think God was offended? I'm telling you, God is more offended at timidity than he is at aggressiveness. Faith is supposed to be aggressive. Not foolish. There's a time for faith. There's a moment for faith. And that moment is when you have obtained what God has given you, <clears throat> you need to call upon him and use it. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So let's review these five characteristics of Elisha's life that set him up to receive from God that double portion. He pursued God with his whole life right up to the end. He crossed the Jordan, made the decision not to stay behind. He passed up the offer to take a job with the church on the other side. Number three, when it came time to it, and he was asked, he asked, he went right to the top. I want the double portion of the anointing. Number four, he followed exactly the nevertheless that God gave him. He kept his eyes on the prize. And then number five, when he had it, he didn't waste it. He used it. He used it. Somebody say glory to God. For our altar call this morning, this is how I want us to focus. Many have settled with the sons of the prophets. So you may have to, you may have to break ties with the sons of the prophets and get back to following Elijah, following Jesus. But many have settled with the sons of the prophets in this life. And they're walking with their mantle that God's given them, tucked under their arms safely. What needs to happen is we need to re-stir fire in our heart. We need to re-stir and recapture that furious faith that says, where is the God of Elijah? And take that mantle out right in front of the sons of the prophets so that God's either going to show up or you're going to look like a fool in front of the sons of the prophets that you insulted by telling them to shut up. You know, Jesus is an all-or-nothing God. Hallelujah. I don't know any other way to put it. Glory to God. I don't recommend foolishness. I had a friend of mine that tried to walk on water during his lunch break when he was working at Tampa General Hospital. And he went out and sat by the pond to eat his lunch. And he had read about Peter walking on the water. And the Satan got him all stirred up. And he felt like, well, if I have faith, I should be able to walk on water. And he, he finally got just up to his neck in the water. He had his scrubs on. And he turned around and walked back out and had to go back to work soaking wet and explain to people what happened. So I'm not saying be foolish. If you really watch what Elisha did, he was faithful. He served God. He waited for the moment. He let the Spirit lead him. But when that moment was there, he acted. Hallelujah. Nevertheless. There's a moment, there's a right time to use nevertheless. God will show you. Be sensitive. Look for it. Hallelujah. And then take up your mantle and use it. This morning I want us to pray, if you'll stand with me. I want us to pray that the mantle that God has put in our life, 
we'll take it up and use it. If, if you've had that mantle folded up in retirement, you need to unretire it. Somebody say, praise the Lord, if you know what I'm talking about. I know, I know, I, I see you stretching and you're like, I'm too old for this. I'm too old for this. Nonsense. Nonsense. Hallelujah. Caleb was 80 years old when he ran up that mountain and kicked all those giants off the top of the mountain. Glory to God. 